Blog Talk Radio. Marcy Ann, and this is my show today. I'm calling it As the Dust Settles, because <laughs> uh, here in Southern California, we've just had a two-day uh, wind event. Locally, we call it a Santa Ana, and it's a weather event that happens when the winds switch around, and, they, and they're not coming off the ocean anymore and moving eastward, but they turn around and come from the desert up over our mountains into our local coastal area. And these winds can be really gusty. I mean, uh, sometimes 40, 50, 60 miles um, per hour. I have always enjoyed these Santa Ana winds. Um, I love to hear the wind. And uh, if we have a Santa Ana in the winter, you know, it brings that heat in from the desert up over the mountains into our area, and it warms things up for us during the winter, sometimes as warm as or warmer than the summer. (laughs) So after a two-day Santa Ana, however, there's just the gobs of stuff and things blown all around everywhere, (laughs) pine cones and pine needles and pods and seeds and I mean just all kinds of general nature stuff everywhere and it takes our cities and our local communities a couple days to get it all cleaned up and during this time we have to be very very careful and walk very mindfully with our heads you know looking down watching every step so that we're not tricked into a fall by by a wayward piece of nature (laughs) that the Santa Ana has brought into our area. So now that the, uh, I kind of feel like uh, this Santa Ana situation is sort of the dust settling, you know, now from the election. (laughs) I mean, stuff and things from the whirlwind events of the last two years leading up to this historic election is all blown all around and now we're we're sort of having to very, very carefully maneuver our way through all the debris. I mean, walking very mindfully with our attention fully focused on what is smack dab in front of us and trying not to be tricked into some kind of a fall by some wayward piece of nature that's currently in the area. Now, I'm originally from Indiana, so when the news came that the carrier plant is going to stay in Indiana and not uh, close and go to Mexico, is probably, uh, I mean, possibly the most promising and the most hopeful thing that has happened so far as the dust, dust has begun to settle. I mean, Indiana went through this once before when Chrysler was going to close their plant in Fort Wayne, and I lived in Indiana during that time, and our local and state government got together then and worked things out with Chrysler, 
and kept those plants open and operating and saved all those jobs for the Indiana workers. They are still there. And I believe that because Indiana has been through this before, it was an easier thing to accomplish this time because we had a precedent set and we had a success story. And so now some of those 1,400 jobs with Carrier are safe now and secure for the Indiana workers. You know, what it takes is compassionate and dedicated government leaders who serve the people and govern for the people to bring such cooperation and eventual good for all. I mean, in, in each and every person in government, in every single one of the states of the United States, not only has the power, but has the responsibility to see that the jobs in their state are secure and that all conditions that are needed to keep these economies healthy are being met. And if new conditions are needed, these public servants have the absolute obligation to create the new conditions and set up precedents and standards of excellence for the benefit of all the people. No more playing politics. No more only ruling for the few. Government is of the people, by the people, for the people, for all of the people. But there's another element to this situation that has not been talked about, and that's what I want to talk about today. And that is the United Steel Workers Local 199.9 Union, who continued to make unreasonable and unattainable demands upon this company, supposedly to benefit the workers, but... You aren't helping the workers when you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. If you kill the goose, then there are no more golden eggs. And the union actually killed the goose by asking for wages and health care benefits that went way beyond the company's ability to pay and still be able to make a profit. So a company has to figure out how to stay in business. And so their answer was the cheap non-union labor force available to them in Mexico. Workers who were going to be thrilled to have a job. A worker who would be willing to work for $15 an hour. I mean, this is what has driven all of the American businesses out of this country. You know, I just wonder if the local steel workers union number 1999 went to their workers and said, look, you're at the highest level of pay that is, it is worth it to this company to pay you to make their stuff. They can't pay anymore. So do you want them to close the company and go to Mexico where they can get cheap labor? Or would you be willing to keep making what you're making now and keep your job? 
you know, if I was given this choice, I would elect to go. I would elect to keep my job. I would even be willing to take a pay cut. <clears throat> so there's only so much life's blood in a company. Now, the lifeblood of a company is called profit. And I think there's just a basic disconnect between the union leaders who supposedly are representing the union workers and the corporations. And I think that the union thinks that if there is still even one penny of profit on the table for the corporation, the union workers should get another raise. But this disconnect is total ignorance of how capitalism works. You know, this used to be taught in high school. It's just basic economics. I learned these basic economics in high school. I don't know if they're teaching economics in high school anymore today or not. Actually, I would say that I learned basic economics around the dinner table at night when we ate together as a family. I mean, Father came home from work, and we all sat down to dinner together, which Mother had fixed for us. And we said our prayer of thanks for the food. And then Mother would serve each of us our main dish, whether it was meat or fish or stew or or liver. I remember we had liver once a week, (laughs) and we were forced to eat it. We couldn't leave the table until every bite of that liver on our plate was eaten. And I, and I can remember having to force those bites down my throat, trying desperately not to vomit, but I could get it down. And then the rest of the food was in big bowls that we passed around the table, and each of us took a spoonful of mashed potatoes or vegetables and salad and fruit. And then my job after dinner was to do the dishes because my mother, my sister had helped mother make the meal. So I did the dishes. And um, my father belonged to the union. He was an electrotyper. Now in printing, electrotyping was invented in the late 1800s as a standard method for producing plates for letterpress printing. And then in 1901, stereotypers and electrotypers in several countries, including the U.S., formed labor unions around these crafts. Now, these unions persisted into the 1970s, but by the late 20th century, after more than a century, 100 years, in widespread use for preparing printing plates, the craft became obsolete and was replaced by offset printing and the other new, new technologies for the preparation of printing plates. And then all the newspapers and magazines and all the other plant, print media finally all switched over to offset. Well, that was the end of electrotyping, as well as the unions who had created to protect the craft. And then when it came time for retirement, well, the union leaders had stolen all the money. So there was no retirement. And when the company went out of business, 
the union, along with all the promises of job security, retirement, and everything else, just walked out. And my father lost his job and any retirement, everything, after working as an electrotyper for 40 years. And all he had at that point was his Social Security. I mean, thank God for Social Security. And this same thing keeps happening again and again. I mean, whichever company it was that used to make landline telephones today has a very small market compared to pre-cell phone time. And this is called advancement. (laughs) But a friend of mine was an iron worker, and he got his jobs through the union. He could go into any city in the U.S. and go to the iron workers' meeting and get a job. And his job security and his retirement was through the union. Well, just a couple weeks ago, he got a letter from the Iron Workers Union that advised him that they were now insolvent and they were giving notice that he would not be receiving his pension anymore because the union leaders had invested the money in the banking debacle of 2008 and bought a whole bunch of those worthless bungled mortgages And now the union was bankrupt. So what about all those years he worked as an iron worker? It's all down the drain. And he only paid into Social Security for a short time, so he gets a bare stipend today from Social Security. He doesn't know what he's going to do. So what do we do as the dust settles? Would those United Steel union workers in Indiana be willing to take a pay cut to keep their job? I would rather keep my job. I mean, even if I didn't get as much, then to just be out on the street, my union no longer able to protect me or keep my job secure because they decided to kill the goose that laid all the golden eggs? (laughs) Friends, there's just so much blood in a company. And you just can't keep sucking the blood out of a company. It kills the company. And that blood is called profit. And here is how it works. A man, and sometimes it's just one man, he sees a need for a product. One of the things that the company who owns Carrier in Indiana makes is elevators. So with the invention of the idea of an elevator, this was in the mind of one man. That original idea of an elevator came from Archimedes back in 200 B.C. Now, Archimedes was a physicist. He was an engineer. He was the greatest mathematician to ever live. And he had made some drawings about his idea, and then he built a prototype to see if it would work. (laughs) So way before there is a union worker, there has to be a man who has an idea and who has the intellect and the brains to see if his idea can work. And he has to know mathematics and physics and geometry. 
Union workers don't know these things. A union worker is a person who does what he is told. He is to stand at this station along an assembly line and put this plug into this hole. And this kind of work is only worth so much to a company. You can't pay a union worker $125 an hour to put a plug into a hole. There are 30 workers along this line of assembly to make this elevator. And the job is only worth $25 per hour because the company can go to Mexico or India or Thailand or China and find willing workers who are thrilled to get $25 per hour to do it. And the spoiled brat union worker who thinks he's entitled to $125 per hour, is replaced. The first electric elevator was built by Werner von Siemens in 1880 in Germany, and he built on the ideas from inventor Anton Fressler, who had used Archimedes' mathematics. And the safety and speed of electric Elevators were then significantly enhanced by Frank Sprague, who added floor controls, automatic elevators, acceleration control of cars, and a lot of different safeties. And his elevator ran faster and with larger loads than hydraulic or steam elevators. And 584 electric elevators had been built and were operating when Sprague sold his company to the Otis Elevator Company in 1895. And the Otis Elevator Company has been operating ever since in this country using American workers and eventually American union workers. But people, you can't kill the goose. You need to let the life's blood continue to flow in that goose and allow that company to pay their investors their dividends before any worker gets anything. So one man starts with an idea, another man adds his ideas, and step by step, one step at a time. And today a company called the Otis Elevator Company, now a subsidiary of United Technologies Corporation, is the world's largest manufacturer of vertical transport systems, and part of their operations are in Indiana. And they were going to move to Mexico because they could no longer pay the exorbitant wages that the union was requesting. Now there's, like I said, so much blood in a company, just like we have so much blood in our body. And the life of our body is in the blood. And you can't keep taking blood out of the body and expect the body to continue to live. It needs a certain amount of blood to keep everything going. Another name for blood of a company is called profit. So now let's look at profit. Because I think that union workers think that they deserve to get all the profit. But this is just like little children sitting around waiting for mommy and daddy to die so they can get their money. 
I mean, I live in a retirement community. I mean, almost everyone in this community is in God's waiting room, all of us. (laughs) We've come here to live out our lives in peace and quiet and make our transition as easily as possible. But let me tell you, you see the kids hovering around, those vultures waiting for the time when they're going to get the money. You know, those children did absolutely nothing to make that money. They're just merely the offspring of these responsible parents. And this is how I see the unions looking at the profits of a company, like vultures waiting for the spoils. The union worker has done nothing to invent the idea. The union worker has provided no money so that the money could even the company could even start operations. The union worker has done nothing towards developing research to continue to have the products be up to date and implement advanced technology. The union worker is just to stand on the assembly line and put that plug in the hole. And he is to get paid to do that. So now let me give you, let's take a look now at this entire basic teaching of economics. Okay, we have the man who has the idea, an idea for an elevator. I mean, you really should look up those pictures in Wikipedia, those original elevators. (laughs) (laughs) They are so interesting. But it took very exacting knowledge of mathematics and geometry and physics and how all those work together and how they oppose one another in order to get that original idea for a working elevator off of a drawing board and into a working unit. Many tries, many failures. Many starting overs, many, many sleepless nights, poring over the figures, asking the whys, trying to figure out the interaction. What happens when we do this? What happens when we try that? I mean, all of life is step by step, one step at a time. Try it and see if it works. If it doesn't, try something else and keep at it until you get it all worked out. There is no instant anything, really. I mean, I think we think we live in an instantaneous world of revelation and manifestation. But it's just that we're at a stage of reaping what a lot of people have already done, step by step. So this one man has his idea. He works on his idea on paper. He proves the mathematics. Then he builds a prototype to see if it'll really work. Now, this man does this all on his own time, with his own money. No one pays him to do this. And then after many, many tries and many trials, he gets it to work. Well, now he needs money to set up the manufacturer of his elevator. And here is where the investor comes in. This is the person with the money. And the man with the idea goes to the man who has the money. And he shows him his figures. And he shows him the prototype that actually works. And if the inventor investor believes in the idea, then he provides the money. And the way he makes his money is to provide the money 
for the investment, and then he gets paid interest on the money. So an investor is actually a personal bank. He uses his own money to invest in ideas, and he gets paid interest for investing the money. So an investor is a person who's willing to risk his own money, his very own money. Would you be willing to do this, Mr. Union Worker? Would you take your hard-earned money and give it to a man with an idea? Would you risk everything that you have on an idea that maybe someday people might use elevators? Because it is the investor who gets paid first. He's the one who takes the risk. So he gets paid first before anybody else, before the worker. The worker is paid by the investor's money. But if there is no investor's money, there is no job for the worker. So the first person to be paid is the investor. And this is what Wall Street is all about. Wall Street are the people who have the money, who are willing to invest their own money in people's ideas, and they get paid interest for the use of their money. Wall Street are not bad people. Without Wall Street, we wouldn't have any money to do anything. Banks are just collection of Wall Street people working together. So the first profits of any company are going to go to the money people first before anybody else gets anything. And the union has to remember this. Without the investor, there is no money. Without any money, there is no company. And without any company, there is no job. And there is only so much profit to be earned. Now, the first person who gets the profit is who? Let me hear you say it all together. The first person who gets the profit is the investor. So I say to the United Steel Workers Union Local 1999, where is your obligation to your workers? Without considering the overall economics of the production of Otis Elevators, you have failed in your responsibilities representing the members of your Local 199. You killed the goose. How absolutely irresponsible and, I might add, irrational of you. And I would put you right alongside those criminal union leaders who stole all of the funds out of my father's pension that he thought he was saving all along while he worked as a union worker stereotyper. And I put you right alongside those criminal union leaders who ignorantly invested in those worthless bundled mortgages and bankrupted the Iron Workers Union, leaving my friend and God knows how many more union workers stranded. No way for them to earn a living now 
as a union worker, what are they to do? And I put you right alongside those union leaders who bankrupted United Airlines, killed the goose. And now my friend Linda only gets 60% of her pension after working 38 years, dedicated, serving their customers in the best fashion possible on their worldwide flights. She's 70 years old now, and prices are higher than they've ever been. And she only had 60% of what she had counted on. She did her part, and she just got raped. It's criminal what happened. So this is what I'm going to say. I feel that the time of the unions is over. I believe that unions had their place at a time in our history when the worker was taken advantage of, and the worker wasn't paid what he was worth. But now the worker is paid way more than he is worth. There is only so much value to a company for a worker. And when workers don't want to work eight hours to get eight hours pay, they only want to work six hours but still get paid for eight hours. And then the worker wants paid vacations, and the worker wants paid sick leave and health care and everything else. He isn't producing any value for the company but he just still wants to be paid for everything. Well, people, there just isn't enough profit for all of this. Here in my retirement community, I watch these union landscape workers. They start work at 7.30 a.m., and then at 9.15, they're all out there sitting out under the tree, listening to their radio, having a drink and a snack and chatting. And then around 9.45 until 9.45, and then they go back to work until 11.30 when they all go to lunch until 12.30. And then at 1.45, they're all back sitting under the tree again, having their drink and their snack and listening to the radio or on their cell phones until 2 o'clock. And then they go back to work until 3.30 when they all go home. They work six hours. They get paid for eight. Our community service fees are, for our maintenance have doubled since I have lived here. It used to be $325 a month, and now it's $625 a month. I pay this. I pay for these exorbitant landscape workers to get these exorbitant union wages. And at this point, we are at the apex of what it is worth to hire a union landscape worker. We can't pay anymore. You know what the funniest thing about this is? They're all Mexicans. So there's no place now even for us to get any cheap labor anymore. Because the unions have corrupted the Mexican worker, who now makes such a great living here in the U.S. No wonder all of them want to come here. And their babies are American citizens and get all of our health care and subsidy programs, as well as the union wages that are eventually killing the goose. Well, I guess at that point, these Mexican workers will all have to go home because there are no more golden eggs. 
So at the beginning of this program, I said, as the dust settles, we are now very, very carefully maneuvering our way through all the debris, (laughs) walking very mindfully with our attentions, fully focused on what is right in front of us and trying not to be tricked into a fall by some wayward piece of nature that's currently in the area. And if you are a union worker, you need to look into what your union leaders are doing with your dues, your retirement, your job security. Government can only do so much to undo corrupt union practices. And what I want to emphasize is that walking very mindfully with our attentions fully focused on what is right in front of us is the key right now. What is right in front of you? What needs to be taken care of that is right smack dab in front of you? That wayward piece of life that it's swirled its way to that is now staring you straight in the face. Don't step over it or try to ignore it. Don't pretend that it isn't there. Be brave and stare it right back in the face and decide for yourself, not for anybody else, but just for you. What are you going to do? I heard someone say last week, you don't have to change the whole world to change the world. All you have to do is to fully focus on what is directly in front of you, staring you full in the face, and decide what you are going to do about it. And what you decide will change the world, your world, but that's all you're in charge of anyway. And that's all you have any power over either. And remember, life is always step-by-step, one step at a time. Do the step that's staring you right in the face today, and then you'll be able to take the next step. And as the dust settles and we get a lot of this debris cleaned up, we're going to really, I promise you, see a shiny new world of companionship and community and caring, that new golden age that we've all been waiting for. 